Welcome to another episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm John Farrell, ILSR co-director, and this episode I'm talking with Jeremy Schrader, city council member from Minneapolis, Minnesota, about the ways cities can exercise their local power to confront climate change. We'll also get a brief cameo from former ILSR staffer and now city council policy aide Carly Weinman. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Carly, welcome back. Thanks, John. Carly says she's just going to sit and watch this amazing conversation, but uh, you never know. She may feel an, an urge to jump back in. But at any rate, we have lots of stuff to talk about today. Uh, what I'm most excited to talk about is, in general, the power of cities. So as the federal government has become less relevant, uh, both with a major sh- government shutdown that is continuing, uh, even as we have been planning this podcast episode, and also an administration that's failing to lead on many major economic issues from climate change to economic concentration, cities have been stepping up. In the energy sector, the challenges for cities overlap. As in more than 30 states, including Minnesota, the utility companies that provide electricity or gas service have monopolies that are given to them by the state. So cities don't control the utilities or where their energy comes from. And yet Minneapolis is one of 100 cities that have, for example, committed to get 100% of its electricity from renewable resources in a decade. So Jeremy, I want to start off by just asking you what I hope is a relatively simple question, which is why has Minneapolis made this commitment to 100% renewable electricity? The simple answer is we've had, we have to. You know, something we get the same data the federal government, the state government does. And when you look at that, uh, we have to act now. If we are serious about stopping and reversing climate change, the time to act was a long time ago. Um, now we have to take uh, much more immediate action, uh, much more uh, like tougher action. Uh, we would hope for the, you know, the bodies of government that have the resources like the federal government, like the state government to be leading. Uh, but that hasn't happened, not just in Minnesota, but across the nation. So you see cities step up with what they have. And we've had to be pretty creative. Uh, we've had to really be be scrappy about how we do that. Um, but it doesn't supplement for what, what we would hope to see from the federal government and from our state government. When it comes to achieving renewable energy goals, so the powers of cities vary a lot. Uh, We've talked before on my energy podcast and on building local power that there are some like 2,000 cities across the the country that actually own their own utility company. Uh, There's a few hundred more that are part of what are called community choice programs, which allows the city to choose their energy supplier. What power does Minneapolis have in order to achieve this 100% renewable electricity goal that is so urgent? That's a great question. I mean, it certainly would be easier if we'd be able to, to have the choice that a lot of other cities have. Um, but we do have an opportunity that other cities don't. Like we have some leverage uh, with our utility company uh, companies called the Clean Energy Partnership. I know you've talked about that before. Uh, but it, it's something that we um, as a city have entered in with our utilities to really say these are our uh, clean energy goals. Uh, we want to meet those. Uh, We hope that can be a beneficial partnership for um, not just all the residents of Minneapolis, but for utility companies that, you know, claim that they want to be at the same place, that they want a clean, renewable future too. Um, And we're hoping that we can be um, kind of that test case that can make, uh, make that possible. You know, I was wondering if you could give an example of a way in which this clean energy partnership is trying to leverage both the, the power of the utility companies over the energy, providing the energy and, and the power of the city. Is there some policy that's come about for, as part of this partnership? Are there interesting ways that they have been working together? 
I, I think the, the jury's still out on whether this is the best and most effective way to do that. Um, it has been, I, I, I sit on the Clean Energy Partnership with two other city council members, and we've been there a year. Uh, so when you ask about specific policy outcomes like that, I, I would be very skeptical about. I mean, we have plans. Uh, we have some policies that we're uh, hopeful of. Um, an example of one would be inclusive financing. It's a, a policy that if we can worry that everyone, including the utilities, is committed to working towards. Uh, but again, that's also in its infancy. If we're able to have inclusive financing, commonly called a kind of a pay-as-you, pay-as-you-save model. Uh, I'm in the room with two experts, so if I pause a little, <laughs> I'm waiting for you two to jump in. Um, but something like that is going to be able to let uh, folks that don't have access to um, energy efficiency, you know, we call them upgrades, but I mean, as time goes on, these are needed things for their household. Um, they're going to have access. And if the utility can help us leverage that um, as well as look out for their con- consumers. I think the clean energy partnership would, would be a benefit. You know, it, it was even before you took office uh, uh, just uh, last year, but um, the clean energy partnership really began about five years ago, and I was intimately involved in it. For people who want to hear more, you can go to our local energy rules podcast. We've done a couple of things. I believe Carly was the interviewer in one of those, uh, interviewing me about the work that uh, took part in leading up to the partnership. Um, and it was kind of an alternative to the city actually going through on a utility takeover. So, you know, of these 2,000 cities that have municipal utilities, most of them were formed 100 years ago and were the first utility to occupy that space. But a few of them are the result of cities actually taking over using uh, their power uh, of eminent domain to basically buy out the utility company. And you already kind of alluded to this, like there's some promise out there for this thing to develop, but it's already been going on for five years. And I'm curious if, (laughs) you know, if you or maybe if other city council members that have been around a little longer following this are feeling like you're getting near the breakup point, or if you feel like uh, you still want to keep following through and and, and seeing what can come of it. I think that to start on answering that question, it's really about thinking about the residents of Minneapolis and what's going to be better for them. Like how we have an outcome we want to get to, and that can be, you know, interchangeable with different players and different um, ways of getting there. Um, And I think right now we are really trying to weigh how do we get there in the way that's going to be most cost effective, most inclusive um, and, and quickest, you know, how are we have that? So I think the, the, I think the promise of the clean energy partnership is still there, but as you pointed out, like it's, it didn't start with me. Um, it started many years ago. And so the clock is ticking. Uh, like we are watching the utilities pretty closely um, and, and pushing them because I think when the clean energy partnership was started, it really, it had the backing of all Minneapolis residents. Um, and I think that's the power that the city brings forward to, to talk in that partnership. But another part of it is the residents are holding us accountable. Like we need to make this city a sustainable city. We need to see outcomes. Um, and that's not just on the city and its enterprise, but on the utilities as well. I'm really curious, you know, it's it's funny what you say about this notion of timing, and I, I know I sort of pressed the question, but for some context for folks too, you've got Boulder, Colorado, which has the same electric utility, Excel mm-hmm. Energy, although a different division uh, from back in the days when the utilities were largely confined to, uh, to operating within particular states as opposed to these multi-state conglomerates. Um, and, you know, they've been pretty much actively pursuing municipalization uh, takeover since about 2011. It's something that I've covered uh, in, in some of our writing, and we've talked with folks from Boulder for some of our podcasts, um, and they're still not there yet. In fact, I think they're very close to issuing the final order for the takeover of the utility, but all this time has been essentially just building up to, are we going to actually take over? And meanwhile, 
the utility and and the city haven't really been able to work together very effectively. So I'm, I, I think I share your optimism to some degree about this partnership being able to be a, a quicker way, as you say. But uh, there is a lot of urgency, obviously, in, in terms of what we're doing. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't address another major policy change that the city has recently adopted. So you know, it's not just in energy, of course, that cities are doing interesting things, but across a whole range of stuff. And so this is around the Minneapolis 2040 plan or the new city comprehensive plan. So I'm hoping you can start by just explaining for people like me who are not experts in things outside of the energy sector, what is a comprehensive plan? Uh, and then I have a few other things that we like to know about what makes Minneapolis, why is Minneapolis essentially getting in the news for this comprehensive plan? Sure. Well, let me let me start with a little background, though. So a comprehensive plan, uh, Minneapolis is required uh, to submit our uh, basically land use plan. It kind of started as a land use plan um, to the Met Council. So all of the, the cities in the Met Council region uh, must do a plan. So as Minneapolis was doing a plan, St. Paul was doing a plan, Richfield was doing a plan. Um, and it happens every every 10 years. So we've been doing it uh, for quite some time now. This isn't the first comprehensive plan. And that kind of leads into some of your other questions. But uh, to go a little bit further, what it does is it really talks about kind of the high level of you know what kind of growth if looking at our um, population projections, how much growth are we having? And so where are you going to put new housing? Where are you going to allow for transportation? Where are you going to allow, um, make sure if, if affordable housing is an issue for you, where would you put that? Where would you put workforce housing? All those questions are there. And some of it, when you think about Met Council, they want to make sure you're not putting your sewage treatment plan on the city line next to another um, municipality and, and vice versa. So I think it's how do you play all well together is kind of one part of it. And why Minneapolis was getting in the news is we took that a step further. You know, we took that pretty seriously on a, a couple different fronts. Uh, one, um, zoning has been used historically as a way of redlining, as a way of dividing communities, and a way of dividing, you know, the e- equitable growth of a city. And so, as you know, you have a ten, well. 2040 plan, um, it's important to think about how we grow, how that wealth is distributed, how all the people that are contributing to this great city, you know, get a, get their share of that and get some benefit. Um, so how, how can we do that? Um, and one part was really making sure that there were more housing options throughout all the city. And I mean, that's something that we got, um, I think a lot of local news, there's a pushback as well as cheers for, um, right now, um, you can go up to three units on a single uh, lot. Um, that said, staying within the same setbacks to, to get a little bit more in the weeds. Um, well, but let's, it, let's go on those weeds in a second. But right. I just want to take a step back in terms of this comprehensive plan and understand, you know, so we have this metropolitan government here in the Twin Cities area. We have to do these plans to make sure that we're kind of, as you said, growing with our neighbors. I thought the sewage plant is an excellent example, right? You know, wouldn't it be convenient for Minneapolis to stick it right on the border with St. Paul and let them share in the... <laughs> Uh, unpleasantness, of course, ignoring the fact the river is our border uh, for a moment. Um, how often do, I mean, the, so we're doing these plans every 10 years. Are they always forecasting out 20 years? Is that kind of the way it goes? It's a 20 year plan every 10 years? It is, but I think that's some of the, the trick to it. I mean, between 2000 and 2010, like we saw minimal, like double digit, like that's it for population growth. And we're projecting 37,000 uh, that will be coming between now and 2040. And so the plans plans look completely different. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you put that all in there? And then I think one thing that is not in the plan, but is in the planning um, is that this is all dependent on the market. Like there's no, there's no funding, there's no immediate plans for the, the comprehensive plan. There's no developers or industry we've been working with that went into the plan. What it really says is if you 
want to know what um, you're looking at purchasing property or want to develop your own land, this is what would be possible. Um, I mean, I think one of the things I would have liked to see more in the 2040 plan is, is really seeing it as a visioning document of what do we want to be as a community. You know, it's seeing that the type of growth we're projecting is disruptive no matter where it's going to be in the city. So how do we address kind of the racial inequities that we, we still live with as we look at homeowner and income disparities throughout the city? Um, how when we look at which parts of the city have, have access to transportation and what, what type of housing is available in every area? So if we really are about equity um, and access for all, what, what does that look like? And I think some of that came out in the plan. Um, but for myself, the, the city did you know hundreds of meetings to form this document. I myself had over a dozen um, of them. And I, I think there was a lot of discussion of what people didn't want. Um, and I would have liked a little more discussion of what we did want. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I find so interesting about this is, you know, we talk about, you're talking about the population growth is mm-hmm. sort of being disruptive. You know, we're adding something like 10% to the city's population. And yet in the 1950s, Minneapolis had half a million people yep. and, you know, another 100,000 more than it's got now. And so in some ways we're just sort of moving back Although obviously that the makeup of that population will be very different. That was after the baby boom. It was before a lot of white flight to the suburbs. So uh, you know, I remember in my first South Minneapolis neighborhood, which I think was also uh, in your ward, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But I remember a woman who lived across the street who raised three kids in their, you know, essentially in the basement where they curtained off different <laughs> bedrooms. And I have that in quotes. Um, and so the, obviously the, the style and the expectations uh, of families were different. So let's, let's just dive right into that kind of big meaty thing in the comprehensive plan. Obviously there's a lot of pieces to it, but the thing that got all the attention was this notion of like, how, what can you build on a particular piece of property? So could you explain a little bit about how that changed? And it probably will start to explain for people when you mentioned lots of folks came out to say what they didn't want, that this was in the crosshairs. Oh, certainly. So I, I mentioned that three units could be on, on a property. So right now um, you can build a single family home and that, that home could be quite large, um, frankly. And what the new comprehensive plan would allow three units, same built form. So you would be building what you could build today under the, the former zoning code for a single family house. It's just for three units. Uh, I think as you talked about, you know, we're, we're talking about this huge growth, like it's something we haven't had before. And we're talking about Minneapolis growing to what it used to be. And so that, that really gets to the problem the city was looking at, you know, how, do you encourage more more people to live in that same area? You know, we have where, you know, my own my own single family home where where we live. You know, we had a much bigger family living there, and you see that throughout the city. So in in our area around the, uh, we have some bigger homes that could be easily broken up into duplexes. We actually have some rather small um, duplexes. World War One kind of time that are already in the neighborhoods. Um, it was really more about allowing more options than prohibiting anything. And mm-hmm. I think that got lost in the discussion too. It doesn't prohibit single family homes. If someone wants to biggest build a single family home, that's there. Um, but what it also does is expand what's possible for, for seniors, for people on a fixed income, for, you know, uh, new families, like being able to have those options that we just, we don't have. Um, I th- and one other thing I, d- I would add is, you know, between t- uh, 2010 and 2016, Minneapolis had tremendous growth. So we were known for our affordability and for our housing options throughout the city that you could, you had that choice. Um, when we saw that growth, you know, the affordable housing worked. People found it and people are there. 
and the in our um, kind of neck of the woods in South Minneapolis, like I would say the affordable housing is working, uh, but the issue is we're just out of it. Right. So, you know, I, I find this such an interesting conversation because we already have, we've had a lot of redevelopment, a lot of people interested in moving into urban areas. Uh, I see in our neighborhood, uh, you know, the area you represent and where I live, we already see a lot of change happening. We mm-hmm. see people coming in. They decide that the 1,500-square-foot home that was built in the 40s or 50s is too small for them, for their single family, and they build a 2,500-square-foot home. And I think one of the things, as you said, that kind of got lost in the mix in terms of the change is that the the, the size of the structure isn't really at what was at issue because the person can people can already build a giant home on the property as long as they respect the setback and the height limitations and whatnot. So we're really just talking about sort of subdividing what could go on the property, right? Mm-hmm. We're just talking about that piece. And then again, you, you have this this notion of, oh, well, somehow something really big is changing. And yet, like we're talking about forecasting a population 20 years from now that's still smaller than Minneapolis was 60 or 70 years ago. And so there will be fewer people in the city. And all we're really saying is, why don't we be, subdivide our lots a little bit more so that we can allow them to live in different configurations than they did before? Is that pretty much capture what we're talking about that's part of i mean i also want to stress that the 2040 plan like that is really the the 10,000 foot high level um what will be happening in the next couple years is is the zoning change that really sets sets what that's going to look like in in real Mm -hmm. life you know as someone wants to build a single family home or build a duplex it will will be talking about kind of the setbacks and other things i People were really concerned about what could happen. I think that they, a lot of folks really felt that we were going to see lots being combined, that we would see bigger homes. Uh, one of the issues I, I would say was that early on, people started talking about, their, their earlier proposal was for a, um, four units, and they talked about it as a fourplex. And what that really brings to mind, even, even to myself, like you think about those apartment buildings that are out to the property lines that are not as um, you know thoughtful about kind of permeable surfaces and neighbors and all of those things. And that's what the image really was of. And mm-hmm. I think that really people were worried um, about losing, you know, losing their community. And, that, and that's serious. I mean, I, don't, I think that the plan's very different than their fear. Um, but I think that the city needs to address, you know, what they're afraid of and be able to, t- able to talk to um, how we are able to do our best to make all these goals possible. I want to come back to what you alluded to a little bit earlier about, for example, redlining, mm-hmm. some of the racial inequities, and also about kind of this notion about, um, I think I've heard the phrase like living in place where people, oh, as they age, whether they're mm-hmm. a aging in place, aging in place. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, where people are, you know, they maybe want to be able to stay in the same area of their community, even as they are maybe buying their first home as a couple, then they're having children, then their children have moved out, but they still want to stay uh, in their community. It seems like this is going to address some of these different issues. Could you, t- uh, t- I've now broadened my question way beyond what I wanted <laughs> to, which is maybe let's just start with the issue about redlining and, and racial discrimination. Because for a lot of people, they look at this and say, oh, I don't want my neighborhood to change. But there's also a lot of people who live in Minneapolis for whom they have always been prohibited uh, by policy in a lot of ways from being able to have the flexibility to live in different places, to be part of communities in different places. How does this help uh, address some of those issues about, uh, you know, for people of color, for example, being able to find affordable places across the city? So first, when you, when you talked about it being prohibited by policy, I think that's part of the misconception. When we, I, I've just found as the cities talked about redlining, 
it, it seems like people talk about it as it's, it's, it would be illegal for a person of color to be moving in these neighborhoods. And that's, that's not it. It was an economic impossibility, mm-hmm. you know, and our, our history is, it has shameful examples of when we had you know, families um, of color move down in, in neighborhoods around us um, and just the, the horror of what they had to endure just to be able to have, have the, the right that every person should to be able to live where they want um, and where their means allow. Um, and that just wasn't possible. Where the 2040, I wouldn't say that we've corrected that, I, but I would say we've stopped the needle. You know, we have been able to, um, with, with the plan, look look at, frankly, our shameful history and say, you know, you're no longer going to be able to tell where uh, people of a certain wealth are. It's zoned by what's um, something that goes throughout the whole city and try it tries as best as it can to be equitable about it. And so by providing, you know, more options throughout the city, we're, we're hoping um, that we'll be able to see more development that will allow uh, more affordable homes, uh, more homes that would fit kind of the character. I mean, we haven't really talked really about the kind of the energy efficiency and resiliency and what, what the plan would do for that. Um, but it's, it's the mixed communities that are going to be the most healthy, those that have um, diversity of folks on income um, and background that are going to be able to, to be resilient and be able to uh, kind of thrive as their own small community. I appreciate you kind of correcting on on this notion about policy prohibitions, because, of course, the redlining wasn't something that the city didn't write into its previous comprehensive plan or into its zoning that, you know, people of color live here and white folks live here. It was obviously an interaction of the market where banks would mm-hmm. say we're not going to loan to people of color if they move into these areas. It was also an economic pressure about, for example, the size of the lot and the size of the property, making it economically infeasible for folks who didn't weren't wealthier to live in certain neighborhoods. So how might a neighborhood, you know, how does this plan address that? So if I'm in a neighborhood like I live in, where it is a lot of single family homes right now on fairly large lots for an urban area anyway, um, how, how might that change over time? It's going to change slowly because of course, no property, most people aren't going to change their property while they live there. It's going to change when they sell. Previously, people would buy a small house and tear it down and build a bigger house. So that mm-hmm. was the kind of change we saw in neighborhoods. What's going to happen now that's going to be different that helps to address that economic barrier that was there for folks of being able to, for example, live in a neighborhood and go to Hale Elementary School, Mm -hmm. where right now it feels like you need to have $400,000 ready to buy a house to be, to go to that school. And, and, you know, we want to make sure that people have access of all means. Yeah. I would add, you have to be pretty quick if you're trying to get something in our neighborhood too. (laughs) Yes. I would say the, the comprehensive plan, the 2040 plan is, is more of a framework. You know, I, I think when you're um, fighting against you know racial inequity as well as climate change, it's it's and affordability, affordable housing. Um, it's about intention. You know the density and moving more people is not necessarily um, on it on its face going to fix those problems. Um, but with what will change is being able to have something like an inclusionary zoning policy, something that I've been working on with the council president to make sure that when developers are developing, um, they're held accountable to having some affordable housing. And that's that would be throughout my goal is something that would be throughout the city um, and make sure that every neighborhood is is approached equitably to so that when people are looking at home, uh, regardless of their background, um, they will have some some options available. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into a little bit more about the comprehensive plan in Minneapolis, but then also talk a little bit more about how uh, the city has been able to stand up to some of the uh, incumbent power holders in the different sectors that it's dealing with, especially back to this uh, question of energy. Mm 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Building Local Power with guest Jeremy Schrader, City Council member from Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is the part of the podcast where you usually hear something about a mattress company or a meal delivery service. But the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is a national organization that supports local economies, so we don't accept national advertising. Instead, please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all of the resources, from reports to podcasts to interactive maps, we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org slash donate. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org slash donate. We also value your reviews on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Now, back to our discussion of cities and climate with Councilmember Jeremy Schrader. So we're back, and I wanted to talk a little bit. I mean, the comprehensive plan is such an interesting thing, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the news that I was reading about it because as a resident of Minneapolis, like you said, it was in the local news all over the place. As the discussions were going on, there were lawn signs going up saying either people are saying my house is going to be bulldozed. There were other lawn signs saying we're all happy to have more neighbors. But then I started as the after the policy passed, reading stories in national publications, uh, you know, getting seeing them linked to on, on Twitter or other social media. People were like, Minneapolis has really done something about affordable housing. Uh, in a way that other communities haven't. And you, you've kind of addressed this notion, right? Like the the issue is essentially that not everybody needs a single family home. And a lot of our neighborhoods, there hasn't been accessibility uh, to the kind of housing that people needs or or that we've essentially used it up in, in the growth that we've already seen. And so I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, how much have we actually accomplished? So, you, you know, we've got this comprehensive plan. How much does that reflect it if, if I'm a developer or let's just say I'm a homeowner, right? And I decide, you know what, I'm going to go buy a house somewhere else. Like many people, I might want to rent out my current property. But instead of just renting out the single family home I've got, I'd like to do follow this new policy, build a three unit building there that could be some affordable housing, contribute to kind of this, this goal of both addressing climate change by a little more density. I'm addressing affordable housing. Can I just go do that now? Is it is it that easy? Uh, can we can I build some more properties and 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 go find my own, my you know a different house? Well, I wouldn't say it's that that easy. So I, I think want to stress that nothing changed in the process. You know, the comprehensive plan is one thing that the the city looks at when a development is proposed. So any development is still going to be going through through the city. You'll look at the the city planners depending on kind of the height and what. What change would be at that site? It may need to go through the planning commission and uh, maybe city council itself. Um, so that, all that stays the same. So as things are, uh, I talked a little bit about like we have the comprehensive plan, but the next part is the zoning change. Um, that's going to be the part that you'll be able to see what what else is possible on the property. The comprehensive plan is really the beginning. Um, as I talked to kind of my my constituents and others concerned about it. You're just saying, you know, you're right to push if you have concerns because this really sets everything else up. And mm-hmm. the comprehensive plan has this high, these high-level goals um, and the zoning really flows from that. So while we still have to get into the specifics, the specifics are written from the comprehensive plan. Sure. So, you know, that's actually an interesting, I, it was really interesting to hear you just say, like, you know, I could end up in front of the planning commission. I could end up back at city council. I'm assuming that you guys didn't write this plan thinking, gosh, we want a chance to review every development (laughs) that's proposed in the city of Minneapolis. So, 
the goal of the zoning then that, that's going to follow this is going to have to guide the idea is going to be you establish some guidelines so that you don't have a lot of developments coming before the city council, right? You're going to be trying to simplify this process so people mm-hmm. understand, okay, if I meet X, Y, and Z, you know, is there going to be kind of like a, a cookie cutter standard for lack of it? I know that's not the right term. I'm just trying to think about like, is this going to become easier for folks to follow than feeling like I'm going to end up in front of my local neighborhood board with people <laughs> talking about it? It doesn't fit the character of the neighborhood because there's always going to be two people like that on the neighborhood council, maybe five people. Uh, there's a lot of them. And, and I keep thinking about, I used to serve on a neighborhood council in mm-hmm. one of the wealthier areas of Minneapolis that shall re- remain nameless. And there was, there were proposals even for just, you know, the mother-in-law unit on the garage. And gosh, there were an awful lot of retired people that came out to say that nothing that changed the, the neighborhood at all was in the character of the neighborhood. And so I guess what I'm curious about is, will that get addressed as you firm, like go through the zoning process and whatnot so that stuff can actually happen? Or are we going to see are you, are you, as a city council member, going to spend the rest of your term reviewing <laughs> development applications for triplexes? No, I, our, our whole goal is more transparency. You know, you talked about kind of ease of the process, and that's that that's part of it. But I think the the overall goal is to make sure that we're transparent, um, that people understand, you know, what what could happen and what is happening, you know, throughout the process. I, I think the rest would also be a balancing act. Like there are things that are important to the city, like one combating climate change, making it more affordable, making it accessible, the city accessible to everybody. These are goals of the city. So if there is a way, how do we make sure that we have enough process to assure that the city goals are being reflected in the development that's happening? Um, and at the same time, hold you know, like developers and others accountable to meeting those goals. So while the 2040 plan, ideally, it is um, the zoning that kind of comes after it, it's, it's easy for people to do a development. It's easy to add on and do things that are going to fit with uh, what the city is going toward on it and its goals, as well as what fits in the neighborhood. Um, but it's, it's something, I, I think it's too early to say, like, where's that balance? Because that's, that's rather tough. Right. Um, and I can give you an example through inclusionary zoning. It's something that the city has tried to make it easier for a lot of developments um, as we, in the recent years, like a lot of things have been streamlined um, and in, in a pretty good way to help kind of the development in some of the areas we wanted kind of more economic development to happen. Um, but it is something that when we've given those things away, these are things other cities have done, uh, been able to offer as incentives. And exa- one example is parking. Uh, we really reduced, um, before I came on the council, reduced a lot of the parking. Um, and that's helped a lot of developments uh, become, frankly, a little bit more affordable um, in scope, but also be um, something that a developer would, would push for. So if they were a little bit more, uh, you know, pushing back on the ability to do more affordable units. That's something the city, other cities have leveraged to say, well, how about you do less parking and you can do this many more units. And that's, that's something we don't have. So it really is a balance of how do we, you know, be a good place uh, for people to invest in and really have um, people that are building buildings for a hundred years. How do we have that? And at the Mm -hmm. same time, make sure that we have our core goals of being a city for everybody um, and a city that's going to be thinking about the next generation and our impact on the earth. I'm interested in this. I, I feel like I'm a, an amateur a lot city out planner there. in some ways. Like I, I follow all these, I follow all these people on Twitter, and so I feel <laughs> like I hear all sorts of interesting things, and I'm never sure how to process it. Um, but really curious about this issue on on parking. Now, you were just saying sort of like the city doesn't have that kind of leverage that other cities have about maybe negotiating over 
housing units versus parking. Is that is that because I think I remember that in the plan you essentially said there are no parking mm-hmm. minimums. There's no requirement to include parking. So is that what you mean when That's you don't correct. have well, that parking, leverage? Or parking's w- expensive. You know, it in a lot of the areas that mm-hmm. you see development, um, like the the downtowns and the uptowns, like we already have. Um, it's there's not as as much parking, um, but it also I think one thing that gets lost in that discussion is there's a market cost for that. Like developers, uh, when you see a development go up, they you know plan for a certain amount of parking that they are going to need just to get people to buy either buy the units or rent the units. And if that's not possible, um, then they they add that in. Um, but that said, there's also I have historically been kind of an over. Um, other cities have asked for a lot more parking because the fear is always the people will move in and this will disrupt the community. So it's it's really that balance. And I and in recent years, kind of Minneapolis has moved away from that um, standard, where other cities have you know kept kind of the a much um, higher standard for it, and then they've been able to kind of bargain down for other goals. So I'm also curious too in in terms of climate change in terms of some of the other goals you talk about accessibility a lot I'm mm-hmm. assuming that you know transportation is part of that you know the kinds of properties that we're talking about we're getting you know more people in one space we are getting rid of the parking requirements that would normally go with the property um it you know we're, we seem to be moving toward a way that a lot of people are living now like they're graduating from college they're moving to an urban area they're maybe not owning a car how does this kind of fit in with this whole notion of mobility, which is something that a lot of cities are focusing on? And how is Minneapolis able to make sure that, you know, if people don't have access to a parking spot, they're still going to be able to get their way to a job, for example? Well, some of that comes in out in the planning development. Like as a development is planned, um, accessibility to transportation, to um, multimodal transportation is, is considered. Um, it is something that if you're, you're in a transit corridor, um, less parking is going to be required. Um, but I think it's, as you, as you talk about the comprehensive plan and as we think about kind of our, our future in the city, uh, it, it's taking on a much different thing. Like w- transportation is changing so rapidly right now. Um, what we are seeing is that the the things that millennials and like new grad, college graduates are asking for are the same things that many um, seniors are asking for. Um, and it's it's something that makes a lot of people want in their community. And some of that does is not reflected in many Minneapolis communities. So how do we um, how do we have that growth be there? Um, how do we really have that relationship with the community to know what they're really what what they need? I know around us, people would love a coffee shop south of the creek, and it is it's just a where would it go in our current form? And if there was development, how would we have a space for that? Um, so it's it's really on one hand, you know, doing the thinking about the development in that nuts and bolts on paper kind of way, and also just doing the groundwork of talking to people, talking to neighbors, and really knowing uh, what what they would want if things were to change. Right. I feel like we keep going through restaurants over by Kowalski's. If we could just maybe get a <laughs> coffee shop there instead. Um, yeah. Can you work on that? Yeah. I'll put that on the list. <laughs> um, I wanted to kind of wrap up with sort of taking this back to the, the big picture. Um, obviously in the energy fields uh, where I'm most familiar, but also in, I think, other sectors of the economy, there's some pretty powerful incumbent players. And you kind of alluded in our casual conversation over break, you know, that a lot, you've got a lot of new people on city council and you're starting to get familiar with the fact that, oh, we maybe have a little more power to, you know, direct the, where the city's going to be for its future than we thought of before. And, um, you know, how has Minneapolis been able to kind of 
stand up to or even co-opt some of these big players? And, and, and what advice do you have for other cities in terms of them building their own sense of power and agency over some of these really naughty questions, whether it's mobility or affordable housing or energy? Well, I think it'd be two things. Like first, uh, my advice would just be to, to really concentrate on transformative change. Um, and the second one is really bring all these, the intersections of all these problems together. Um, one, one thing that I, I think I'm kind of struck by is just the transformative power, um, uh, like the need for really transforming these systems. Uh, an example that we, we talked about over the break was we've, we've seen with the, the new, my new colleagues uh, just an increase of a awareness of the need for affordable housing and a push from city council members when development's coming up for having that. And even seeing some developers come and say, well, we'll do this mu- a certain percentage. Um, and the council member going, well, you know, we could do better than that. And the developers come back with it. And, and I celebrate that as a win, um, but also want to take a pause and to make sure that cities um, learn that it's other cities learn that it's more than that. Like we still haven't fixed the system. We still don't require affordable housing. Like, I mean, that's something that um, an inclusionary zoning policy, it's not going to matter who's in those seats. Uh, the city itself will be just and think about how everyone can live here. And that, that's the, that level of change we haven't hit yet. And so that's where uh, something I, I work on um, and my colleagues work on, but just know that that work isn't done. Um, the other thing for cities is really to, to bring together all these problems. You know, as we think, you know, desperately about how we are going to combat a problem as big as climate change while looking at the affordability crisis that we have in Minneapolis, as well as other cities, as well as transportation and its impact on all of these, how do we bring that all together? And that's something where there's there's so much going on in kind of the, the the energy sector, not just how energy is generated, but also, you know, how buildings are built. You know, how do we live? How is transportation structured? All these things have ways that can be, you know, more sustainable um, and more more resilient to climate change. Um, and in the end, uh, when it comes down to it, cheaper. You know, we need to think long term and not just the the point we are now looking toward what the change will look like, but look toward what the outcome will look like and look at, you know, after a capital investment, are we going to be operating at a much cheaper rate? I mean, we've seen some of that just with the change to LEDs, light bulbs, um, and to put it on a really small scale. Um, but when you think about all the things from owning two cars to our food systems operate, all of these things, um, while they seem very daunting, that amount of change that would happen, um, when you look five to 10 years down the road, is that the world we want to be living in? Is that the, the way we want to explain the world to our kids? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, it's, it's a struggle and it's tough, uh, but I, that's really where we have to go. I could pick on the energy sector in particular, but I'm just curious, you know, with affordable housing, um, and I'm sure that developers are pretty powerful folks. I mean, some of these are really big companies that do a lot of property development. Um, what, you know, how does, how do you as a city council member think about how to deal with that? I mean, how do you, you're in some ways taking on their interests, right? They have a particular way that they're used to doing developments. Maybe they never cared about affordable housing. Maybe they like to do a lot of parking. Do you feel like there's any backlash? Do you feel like there's any threat to a city in trying to tackle some of these thorny issues in a systemic way, given that some of these are pretty powerful entrenched interests? Absolutely. I mean, we are, I think that's what's held up change. I think what's giving me hope is it's it's not just kind of the size of the problem and how long it's been been there, like how entrenched the interests are, um, but they're seeing the same same world we all are. You know, we have 
we finally have some cold weather here in January, uh, but that wasn't the case, you know, the last couple of weeks. They know something's wrong and, and things have to change. And so when you're dealing with a developer or others, um, they hear the same stories we do. Um, and I'd also say that it's not, it's not just me. You know, it is every single person I represent. You know, they have had kind of their, their thoughts about what, what it is to succeed in Minneapolis Shaken. It used to be you, you get your kids to the U, they get a good job. You've, you've done your job as a parent. But now they're, they've got that good job and they still can't find housing. They, they still have to think about a really long commute in a place that's far away from family. It's something that's going against our values. And it, when people have that level of faith shaken, they're on your side too. That's really transcending everything from housing developers to uh, utility companies. Like, it's something that every elected official right now is being held to a different level of accountability. Um, and I think we're better for it. And you're not going to use the slogan, make Minneapolis great again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to resist the urge, John. So I forgot to ask you about this ahead of time. Uh, so take your time if you need to to answer this. <laughs> but the uh, we often end this episode by asking for a reading recommendation uh, from our guest, uh, something that you've been reading. Uh, if you read books, if you have time for that as a parent, uh, or something else that you've come across that you think would, our listeners might enjoy uh, coming across as well. I don't remember the author, but uh, Food in the City is what I've been kind of the last one I've read. One one part I, I've kind of been struck by that's been really missing from our kind of answers around energy sustainability and, and kind of climate resiliency is is our food networks. And how how does the we as a city get get our food, grow our food, kind of and, and are part of that kind of cycle. Um, and it really talks about what other other cities across the world are doing. I, I, I just found it fascinating to see what's what's possible um, to really look the really scary truth that we're, we're three days from our grocery stores being empty mm-hmm. in, in any major city you go to. Um, and the thought of, while well, I have a garden, I mean, that barely um, gets me a couple salads a summer. So it's, it's something that um, we have to think very carefully. We've gone, we, we have really become accustomed to how we're living and we have to think uh, very seriously about what our options are. It's a little bleak, Jeremy. I'm just going to say that. I hope Carly I'm a, has I'm a, a dark person, Jeremy. <laughs> the truth comes out. Jeremy, Jeremy Schrader, uh, 2021, he's running on everyone. Everyone needs rutabagas in their backyard. <laughs> Carly, do you have a reading recommendation? I've been reading a really great book that was recommended to me by another city council aide, actually, called The Reactionary Mind by Corey Robin. Uh, and it kind of dissects conservatism all the way back to the French Revolution to help us understand how arguments are crafted. Um, it kind of carries these theories through to our age of Donald Trump. And it's it's really instructive tool in kind of understanding the basis for a lot of the political arguments um, that I think we're living through today and engaging in today. And I, I think it's really um, deepened my understanding of what folks who may not agree with me are thinking and why they're thinking it. Um, and I kind of read it like maybe a little bit smugly as a way to craft my own arguments better in those situations. But I think what it's really given me instead is this um, deeper understanding of uh, where conflicts exist in our current systems and um, kind of equipped me with some tools to to think more creatively about ways to overcome them instead of just kind of smashing through them with with new and better arguments. So that's that's my grand hope for it anyway. And I, I guess it takes two to tango. So hopefully we can come together with those we disagree with in a constructive way. Carly, last question for you. Is it more fun working for the city of Minneapolis or for ILSR? I would say I get the best of both worlds right now because I get to work for the city, which I love. And John, you're a constituent, so you're still my boss. 
Very nice. Uh, very smoothly done. <laughs> I'm in politics now. Yeah. Well, Carly and Jeremy, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about what uh, work the city of Minneapolis has been up to. I obviously will be following it as a constituent uh, in terms of the work that's going on, but uh, it's exciting to be able to share what's going on in Minneapolis with folks across the country um, who are really interested in how to wrestle with these knotty issues. So thank you for your leadership. Of course, anytime. And thanks again for having the show. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. I was speaking with Minneapolis City Council member Jeremy Schrader about the city's leadership on climate and inclusionary city planning. Check out the show page for a transcript and links to Jeremy and Carly's recommended books at IndieBound. You can also find out more about the Minneapolis Clean Energy Partnership at ilsor.org energy. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 60 past episodes of the Building Local Power podcast and show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing this podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Mirai. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. Please join us next time for another episode of Building Local Power. Wow, wow, wow.